From Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News, this is an American Radio Works special report. Maybe this attack will wake up America. It's about time you feel our pain. Americans should stop thinking they're the perpetual good guys. We are treated by the American as bugs. We reached a point of boiling. The United States inspires deep and conflicting emotions in other parts of the world. Since the terrorist attacks on September 11th, America has been forced to pay closer attention. I'm Deborah Amos. Over the next hour, we'll explore the roots of resentment against America in the Arab world and the complex emotions the U.S. provokes even in our closest ally, Great Britain. Stay with us for this special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. First, this news update. This is a special report from American Radio Works, the roots of resentment, America, Great Britain, and the Arab world. I'm Deborah Amos. Why are they so angry at us is a question asked with increasing intensity in the months since September 11th. In the Arab world, the answer is layered in centuries of history, an archaeology of occupation and defeat. It starts today with the latest news from the West Bank on Arab satellite TV and is steeped in decades of strife. The Gulf War of 1991, the Arab-Israeli Wars of 1973, of 1967, and of 1948. And those are only the layers of the last 53 years. We sent reporter Sandy Tolan to Egypt and Jordan to investigate Arab anger towards the West and how it's rooted in the events of the day and in long-ago history. Beneath the decades of battles in the modern Middle East lies a far bloodier past, more than eight centuries previous. In 1098, European armies wearing crosses of cloth on their backs rode down from the north. The Crusaders marched for God and for territory. Crossing Syria en route to Jerusalem, they laid siege to the cities, killing tens of thousands. The next year, they arrived in Jerusalem with vengeance that lives on in the collective Arab memory. One rode in blood up to one's knees, wrote a Christian witness, and up to the horse's reins. The Muslim scribes told a similar story. The population of the holy city was put to the sword, and the crusaders spent a week massacring Muslims. They killed more than 70,000 people at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Here in Cairo, a city built on 70 centuries of history, the past bleeds out of stone. School children play at the citadel of Salahuddin, the beloved Muslim sultan who took back Jerusalem from the rampaging Christians in 1187 raising up Islam and the Arabs. Salahuddin was known for his just treatment of Christians and Jews in the city of three great faiths. His death left a vacuum, a centuries-long yearning for a new hero. The legend will not go away easily. It triggers a feeling of pride, a feeling of strength. Yusuf Shaheen is one of Egypt's cultural giants. A member of Egypt's Christian minority, Shaheen is director of dozens of films, including Salahuddin. 
When they go back and they say Salahuddin, they're trying to find somebody who's as honorable, as uh, charitable, as tolerant, as great as Salahuddin, to cover the feeling of, I feel measly. I feel I'm nothing. Shaheen speaks of the historical weight of accumulated defeat from the Crusades forward, the occupation by the Europeans beginning two centuries ago, the birth of modern Israel in 1948, and the Arab-Israeli wars that followed, the Gulf War with Iraq, U.S.-led sanctions and the deaths of thousands of Iraqi children, blood spilling endlessly in the occupied territories. In short, countless humiliations among a people proud of their history, their contributions to art, science, literature, music. You could feel this powerful mix of pride and defeat all over Cairo, across religion and class. Outside the Hussein Mosque and down the narrow cobbled walkways of the ancient bazaar, and the shopkeepers presiding over mounds of spices and rows of silver, cheap cassettes and tiny glass decanters. You could feel it out on the boulevards where appliance shop TVs blare tales of Aladdin recycled via Disney past the McDonald's, the pubs, and the cabarets. And down a potholed alley in a poor section of town, and inside to a warm welcome where you can feel it at the modest home to three generations. First things first, Arab hospitality, chocolate cake and cola for the visitors. In the tiny living room, tacked onto the peeling walls, posters evoking Eden, an elegant fountain in front of a mansion, wild animals tamed in play. The family's shoes are tucked neatly under a chair. The women are covered, so is the nine-year-old girl. The men speak. We are proud. We have dignity. But your attitude makes us feel like we are third-class citizens. Go back to your history books. You will see that the Islamic civilization preceded you. We helped create your Western civilization. When Osama bin Laden swore by God there would be no peace in America until there was peace in Palestine, he brought home an issue that's part of our Muslim consciousness. And America is to be blamed for this problem. That's why there is sympathy for bin Laden. This working-class Muslim family grew up knowing that the holy city of Jerusalem is under the control of Israel. But Jerusalem is the home of Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam the place liberated by Salahuddin from the Crusaders centuries ago. Bin Laden, denouncing a new wave of Crusaders, comparing himself to Salahuddin, taps something deep. But so do the battles from the occupied West Bank every night on television. These images build up inside. Forget about Muslim or Christian. As a human being seeing another suffering and oppressed in his home, and America is silent. But if something happens in a Western country, the world is shaken upside down. So what do you expect from us? We are definitely full of rage. The anger is directed at American policy, especially U.S. support for Israel. Does this mean Muhammad and Walid and Magda and Aya, frowning thoughtfully, sipping at their Cokes, passing the baby from knee to knee, does this mean they hate America itself? Not exactly. 
America is a great country. It's the land of opportunity. I wish I could go there. It's everybody's dream. Mohammed says he loves American movies. Stallone and Schwarzenegger are his favorites, though it does seem strange how one person can fight a whole army and defeat them. The five-year-old has something to say. She likes Hollywood too, thinks it's funny when the boys kiss the girls, thinks it's a shame we have so many car crashes, feels sad when she sees other children getting killed so many nights on the news. We still look up to America, but if the situation continues, I hate to say it, but all Muslims could turn into Osama bin Laden. You needn't visit the poor, the working class, or even the devout to tap a deep well of Arab anger at the West, and the United States especially. It's everywhere you look. A literary salon and cafe on a back alley near downtown Cairo, midnight. Around the tables, glass water pipes with long cloth hoses. Smoke hovers. Two friends gather over strong Arabic coffee every Tuesday. Syed, a columnist for a Cairo Daily, and Madame Hayat, a French tutor. Tonight, the subject is the U.S. attack on Afghanistan. It's the bee against the elephant, Syed says, again. The U.S. is flexing power against sad, miserable people. Madame Hayat stares up with clear blue eyes. It's like this more and more, she says, now that there's only one superpower. We reached a point of boiling. We are treated by the American as bugs, as insects. Madame Hayat spent years as an actress in Cairo's lively political cabarets, lampooning the government. They'd perform in the parks and cafes until Egyptian intelligence under President Sadat and then Mubarak censored them or threw them in jail. This was in the 70s and early 80s. There was a spirit of change in the air back then, she says. Now, only a deepening sense of grievance. Never did she dream that the means of change would shift to radical Islam. Never did she imagine the day she'd be told by the Americans to choose between Bush and bin Laden. I don't think I have to choose between two demons. I'm against both. I really hate bin Laden, but nowadays I really dream a lot of me having two bombs. I would use these two bombs to destroy the Pentagon and the White House, and I would not think of uh, bin Laden. Bin Laden. Even I am against the terrorism. Even though that I'm against terrorists, but they created a terrorist in her, I feel. It's my feeling. There is a disappointment on behalf of America. The respected Egyptian political analyst, Mohammed Sid Ahmed. America sees itself as having defects, perhaps but fundamentally a successful society and a successful enterprise. It does not understand why the others don't see it the same way. America is a powerful state, is a very rich country, uh, can be self-satisfied in these terms, does not understand that other societies that have very serious problems don't look at America the way America looks at itself. As deep as this frustration at the West is, it also serves in some ways as a deflection from anger at events closer to home. In Egypt, criticism of the state is tightly controlled. Political demonstrations are small and frequent and restricted to universities. The president's accomplishments are the subject of fawning news coverage while he runs for re-election unopposed. 
Police or soldiers seem to be on virtually every corner. There are dictatorial regimes that thwart the growth of any rational opposition. The Islamic thinker and author Abdul Wahab al-Masiri. Look at the situation here in Egypt. They demolished the Labour Party. Now the rational opposition that could, through interaction with the government, could have developed, matured. Uh, it was not given the chance. So what you have is phenomena like that. Terrorists, uh, naive people who have visions, and they become leaders. So it's, it's really the, the Arab elites supported by the American administration. This relationship of the U.S. and the Arab elites, al-Masiri argues, is a legacy of European colonialism, which began when Britain and France arrived in the 19th century to start carving up the Arab world. It's a time al-Masiri knows something about. For years, before becoming disillusioned with Western values and embracing Islam, he taught 19th century poetry at Rutgers. The world bequeathed to us by the West since the mid-19th century is a Darwinian world. The only constant, the only absolute value is power. This is the mechanism to resolve conflicts. Uh, this is the mechanism that propels history. This is how you define morality. This is how you define meaning. If you have power, you do what you want. And people have been learning that from the West. And now that power, he says, is transferred in part to Arab governments, who stand in between the desires of their people and the mandates of the superpower. Like all Arab elites, they are frightened because the street was simmering already. There's one important factor that came into the picture now. Arab news, he says, the news satellite networks, especially Al Jazeera. We sit every day to see and simmer and get humiliated. Ordinary people, upper class girls, bourgeois, everyone is angry. And the elites know that. They had to move to protect themselves. And so the criticism spurts out like steam from a calibrated valve, turned open for Israel, shut off for Egypt, adjusted somewhere in between for the powerful benefactor and lone superpower. One afternoon in the Han al-Khalili market in Old Cairo, this all comes sharply into focus. I'm accompanied by a minder from the Egyptian press center. If I want to interview regular people on the street, the government says, I'll need an escort. He writes down what I ask, what the people on the street say in response. It quickly becomes clear I'll need to take our interviews inside and away from scrutiny. But before that happens, a young woman approaches me. She's very Western-looking, with moosed hair and designer jeans. She spotted the microphone and is nearly bursting with what's inside her. Ignoring the government man, she blurts it out. America. Maybe this attack will wake up America. It's about time you feel our pain. The man from the press center tells her, no, no, we don't want to say that. That's not the message we want to put out right now. She ignores him. We've had terrorism for years. How come the war didn't act until America was hit? You're listening to The Roots of Resentment, America, Great Britain, and the Arab World. A special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. I'm Deborah Amos. Just ahead, a look at the forces that create terrorists. It is people so desperate that they believe that they're dead anyhow. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. We're back now with our special report, The Roots of Resentment, America, Great Britain, and the Arab World, from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. Talk to Arabs across the Middle East about their history, 
and they keep using words such as humiliation and defeat. They say the U.S. and Europe have derided Arab countries and tried to dominate them ever since the invasions of the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. And they say it's still happening in the West Bank, in Iraq, and other places. We return now to reporter Sandy Tolan in Egypt and Jordan, where he explores how these perceptions and the rage they foster shape the region's politics. Amidst the sense of defeat rooted in the past, there's a powerful desire to gaze back upon historical pride, upon rare victory, be it Saladin in 1187 or the momentary victory over Israel 786 years later, October 1973. Hundreds of Egyptian children come each school day to the October War panorama in the Cairo suburb of Heliopolis. Flanking the building, Egyptian tanks and missile launchers. Inside, a diorama of model planes and encampments in the Sinai. A booming voice claims that in 1973, Egypt shattered the myth of Israeli air superiority, not mentioning how Israel destroyed the entire Egyptian air force only six years earlier. Despite official efforts in the Arab world to recall the glory of victory, in the end, this is not what stays with the people. The Israel Air Force this morning destroyed eight Egyptian and seven Iraqi planes. In the Jerusalem sector, Israeli forces have captured the height of maybe... Most of the Sinai Peninsula, including Sharm el-Sheikh, is in Israel's hands, as is most of the west bank of the River Jordan, including Jericho... 1967 until the 5th of June, we thought that the Arabs, by hook or by crook, they could convince Israel to let the Palestinian people determine their future. From Cairo now, across the Sinai Peninsula and the Gulf of Aqaba, up the Pan-Arab Highway to the Jordanian capital, Amman, where three old friends gather in a fifth-floor office. Monas Razaz, a novelist, recalls the Arab world's most resounding defeat at the hands of Israel, aided by American weapons and support. They defeated the Arab world in a humiliating way. Nasser was defeated. Jordan lost half of its kingdom. Syria was defeated. All the Arabs were defeated. This marked the unofficial end of pan-Arabism, the quest for one Arab nation championed by Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, a man many considered a latter-day Salahadeen. Monas and the friends that sit with him now, 34 years later, Hani Harani and Mazen Saket, kept working toward it, aligning themselves out of convenience with the socialist bloc because it supported the Arabs. Jailed and exiled, the men over time were worn down while they watched Nasser's authoritarian model of Arab unity, independent of the West, be replaced by dictatorships aligned with the United States. They built up a big bureaucracy and they became more and more authoritarian leaders. Unfortunately, we have Abdel Nasser model without Nasserism without uh, the progressive phase of that. Uh, we have a model of Sadat or Mubarak. Only they are taking the power or the model of Saddam Hussein or Hafiz al-Assad or Muammar al-Ghazafi. Those people who are raising big slogans and uh, achieving few things and ignoring the people. This is the problem on the Arab world. Secularism and pan-Arabism were assassinated by America and the West in general in the war of 67, then the war of 73, 
and then the war of 91 against uh, Iraq. In these wars, the result of them was the end of secularism in, in the area and the support of Muslim movements. In this analysis, political Islam, including extremists like bin Laden, emerged from a suppression of secular opposition movements, a suppression by Arab governments supported by the United States. Unable to express themselves openly, many flowed to the mosque, making it the venue of opposition politics. Men flow out of a mosque and into the sunshine of a narrow street. It's just after Friday prayer in a poor section of Amman. The loudspeakers of this mosque have been turned off, an increasingly common practice since September 11th. This way, no one in the neighborhood can hear the message of the Imam. Across Amman, hundreds of these preachers have been replaced by others approved by the government with a tamer message for the people. These measures are part of the Jordanian government's attempts to curb the growing influence of the mosque on politics. Now the government-approved imam emerges to tell us one thing and one thing only, that Islam is a religion of peace. But the presence of a Westerner and a woman translator without a headscarf has drawn a crowd. It encircles us. The men grow agitated. What is it we want? We want to know how you see America, we say. America, says a man in the crowd. You know justice only if it belongs to you, but you don't know justice if it belongs to someone else. Israel is killing uh, in Palestine every day for 53 years. What do you call this? Why are you not calling tourism this? What do you call this in America? This man is from Jerusalem, but he says he cannot go there. It is my city. It is not a Jewish, a Jewish city. It is my city. My grandfather and my, and my father and I, I was born in Jerusalem. Why is it Dubai? Do you agree to other nations to Dubai, USA? No. The government imam turns to the translator. I advise you, he says, to get him out of here. Leave right now. For many in the Arab world, there seem to be but two choices, aligning with the West and now the war on terrorism or siding with a radicalized vision of Islam. But millions occupy a vast middle ground, and they want neither choice provided by the West or the extremists. Often, they feel lost. It is like a kind of another ghetto. Sausan Darwasa is a Jordanian playwright and producer. Her theme, Arab identity. It has to be a kind of accumulation of wars, of misunderstandings, of instability. Probably it, it comes a long time ago. And, and of course it affects the, the heart and the mind. Keeps you all, all the time on the defensive, and it hinders you from really creating freely. The playwright looks up from her swivel chair. Tomorrow she leaves early for Carthage to put on another production. Though lately, she's not sure why she bothers. For myself, I felt that it is a waste. All these efforts, all these books, all these plays, all these songs, all, all what we have done has come you know, to a frozen picture for me. Who is to blame for these broken dreams? Is it just the West? We're all angry, but I can't help thinking we have also a lot to be blamed for. Another group around another table in Amman. First names only here, Hanya, Muhammad, Hala, Luma, Walid. 
Since September 11th, there's a new penal code. It's now a crime to print anything in the newspapers that could be judged to damage Jordan's reputation. And funny, I mean, most people who are persecuted in our part of the world end up going to the U.S. or to the West for protection or to live some kind of a decent life. So we also have to point the finger at ourselves. Does this anger get us anywhere? No, it doesn't. We have to respect each other, Walid says. We the West, the West us. For the group gathered here, these are words from a faraway world. The reality in Jordan is that the much-heralded peace treaty with Israel has brought scant economic benefit. Tourism is nearly dead, unemployment is high. So just like in Egypt, the anger in Jordan builds, and the chief targets are Israel and the U.S. People don't like the U.S. because of what the U.S. is doing in, in the rest of the world. It's American F-15s, American cluster bombs, American missiles, and American bullets that are killing children all over. People in the Middle East were still willing to give it a try to get the West to understand them. Now simply no one cares anymore. The attitude is becoming more and more to hell with the West. We start feeding the cycle of hatred. We managed for a while to get a good part of the society out of this cycle that, okay, let's give things a chance. Uh, Not all Israelis are bad, not all Americans are bad. But then when you see uh, all that is happening, You start saying, you know, okay, what did we really get for for our goodwill, you know? My God, they hate us, they hate us, and they'll always hate us. They don't even look at us as human beings, so screw them, you know? We're We're gonna hate them. Traveling in the Arab world, this deepening sense of pessimism is inescapable. The deaths in Palestine and Iraq pile up on television. National economies lie in the dumps. The suppression of speech and political opposition stifles hopes for democratic participation. The emotions of the street are rage and despair. We will not solve the issue of terrorism by only dealing with terrorists, but also with dealing with the world society that eventually breeds terrorism. The Arab political analyst Mohammed Sid Ahmed. The extreme expression of conflict against the system is terrorism. It is people so desperate that they believe that they're dead anyhow. And why should others live when they are dead? Hitting at the others alive is a way to protest against the fact that they are condemned to be dead. This is a very dangerous equation. When despair reaches that point, it's a world destroying itself. A scattering of European tourists at the stone tunnel of the Crusader Castle in southern Jordan. The castle was captured by Salah Adin just before his reconquest of Jerusalem. An old man in robe and keffiyeh stands near the edge of the castle. From here you can look out to Palestine and toward the Mediterranean beyond. If only, he says, if only we could have another Salah Be careful, another man had warned me. Don't ask the old man too many questions. He's grown more and more angry. Lately, he's gone into the Islamist camp, thinking dangerous things. We were pained by the loss of the thousands of innocents in the World Trade Center. But we have tens of thousands who have died. And maybe what happened in the United States will help people in America to understand how we have been feeling for many, many years. I'm Sandy Tolan for NPR News and American Radio Works. To learn more about the roots of resentment, visit the American Radio Works website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. 
You'll find maps of the Arab world and photographs of some of the people and places from this story. You'll also find the text and audio for this story and information on ordering a taped copy of this program. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for this program was provided in part by the Open Society Institute. Among the more than 50 countries who have vowed their support for America's fight against terrorism, Great Britain has been America's closest ally. Within days of the terrorist attacks, British Prime Minister Tony Blair pledged that the United Kingdom would stand shoulder to shoulder with the U.S. But British opponents have been increasingly outspoken against the alliance with the United States and the U.S. itself. In a project with BBC World Current Affairs, American Radio Works correspondent Stephen Smith set out with microphone in hand to see if people in Great Britain are as unfailingly supportive of America as their leader, Tony Blair. Then he came back to the U.S. to share what he found with some Americans. Outside the Houses of Parliament in London, peace protesters, keeping vigil with their banners and placards, are far outnumbered by the tourists queuing up at the visitor's entrance. Inside the noble Gothic building, members of Parliament who oppose the way the Allies are waging the war on terror are also in the minority. Still, they take to the floor of Parliament and to media microphones to make themselves heard. It's no act of friendship to follow a friend down a descending staircase to hell. Uh, The act of friendship is to try and stop the friend descending that staircase. This is George Galloway, a Labour Party MP from Glasgow, Scotland. He's a genial, quotable politician who holds the unlit stump of a Cuban cigar as we talk. The hell he envisions is an endless campaign against Middle East terrorism, which he predicts would mean an endless war against Islamic nations. Washington is far too eager to solve problems with bombs, Galloway says. America is a giant, but its political class often seems to have the mind of a child. And a giant with the mind of a child is very dangerous, not only to those amongst whom he roams, but to himself. Harsh. But George Galloway has been pounding on U.S. foreign policy for years. He's especially critical of U.S. support for Israel and for sanctions on Iraq. Galloway belongs to a small but growing cadre of Britons speaking out against what they see as American arrogance and narcissism. Americans should stop thinking they're the perpetual good guys. The world is a very nasty place. There are no good guys, there are no bad guys. I sat on a park bench next to Westminster with Meghna Desai, a Labour Party member of the House of Lords and a professor at the London School of Economics. Desai is of East Indian descent, and he scolds the U.S. for routinely ignoring the needs and lives of the developing world. When Americans die, or people in America die, we all have to stand up and take it very, terrorism very seriously. But lots of other people have died in terrorism or by wars against terrorism. And uh, it's all right. Below us on the River Thames, a police boat churned back and forth, guarding against a terrorist strike on Parliament. This was not the first time, Desai said, that London stood on high security alert because of the United States. This is not the moment to say, for example, but I'll say it to Americans. You gave money to the IRA in Boston, in New York, and they came and bombed 
on British mainland and in Northern Ireland. How could Americans say they're against terrorism? Why was Irish terrorism loved by Boston and Muslim terrorism hated? Oh, come on, give us a break. Well, there's no doubt that Irish Americans have sent a lot of money to the IRA, but some Muslim Americans sent money to al-Qaeda. That doesn't mean America supports Osama bin Laden, no more than it does the IRA. I talked to a lot of people around London, and several reassured me that Americans sometimes can be the good guys. But there was this real sense that, beginning with George W. Bush, Americans are almost comically naive about how the world sees us. I'm amazed that there's such misunderstanding of what our country is about that people would hate us. I am, I am, I am, like most Americans, uh, I just can't believe it. Because I know how good we are. And we got to do a better job of making our case. So what are we going to listen to here? Well... This is what we put out for our election special during the, uh, during the British elections. Uh, Mr. President, I thought you'd want to know that in the British election, uh, Tony Blair is way ahead in the polls. Oh, that's a terrible shame. I'll make sure to send him my commiseratitudes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Mr. President, that's good news. You see, in the British electoral system, the person that gets the most votes is declared the winner. <laughs> I've dropped by the offices of a hugely popular BBC radio satire program called Dead Ringers, which specializes in sending up public figures. The Brits call this taking the mickey out of someone. It's hard to imagine many mainstream American comedians doing a parody send-up of Tony Blair. Much of their audience wouldn't get the joke. But BBC writer Nev Fountain found that taking the mickey out of George W. Bush delighted his listeners. The president is an easy target. Well, yeah, I suppose I suppose it is like beating up a kid, but uh, you know he is the most important man in the world, and I think uh, a legitimate point has to be made when a man who has to be leader of this new world order actually um, should know a little bit about the world he's actually leading. In the new season of Dead Ringers, impersonator John Colshaw says he'll probably steer clear of George W. Bush. Certainly, at the moment, in the light of you know events after September the 11th um, you know I think America has to be supported and it feels kind of strange doing you know impersonations of uh, President Bush at the moment you know before September the 11th you could you could make him that great big fan of Sesame Street and that whole thing and uh, Anibra Metaximacated and he, whatever at the moment I don't really feel that you can do that at all you know I think you just have to be supportive and just let him get his grip You're listening to The Roots of Resentment, America, Great Britain, and the Arab World, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. I'm Deborah Amos. We'll continue our report in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is a special report from American Radio Works, The Roots of Resentment, America, Great Britain, and the Arab World. I'm Deborah Amos. The terrorism of September 11th has tested America, but also its allies. American Radio Works correspondent Stephen Smith traveled to the United Kingdom to probe British feelings towards the last superpower and then shared those comments with Americans. We continue with his report. 
The notion that Great Britain will become a replica of the U.S. came up repeatedly in my interviews, as if U.S. culture were creeping across the globe like a noxious weed. One of the most angry and eloquent critics of the United States is the actor and playwright Harold Pinter. I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety in the country about a standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States, whatever the United States chooses to do. And for us to do that every time the United States takes any action or considers taking any action um, is, I find, a humiliating thing for what is supposed to be an independent country. At 71, Pinter is a voluble left-wing political activist. His internationally renowned plays often deal with alienated characters and menacing forces. Pinter says that, given what he calls the U.S. record of exploiting other countries, a backlash such as the September 11th attacks was historically inevitable. I'm not happy to say it, and I certainly don't approve it, or even I'm not attempting to excuse it. I'm just saying it is explicable if you look back um, on a world, a domination of the world by the United States, by far and away the most powerful country in the world, and proud of being so, and not ashamed of being so, and finally saying, listen, we're the boss, and that's that. Somewhere in our chat, Pinter put down his glass of white wine and rummaged in a file drawer to find a speech he gave in Italy on September 10th. He had declared the U.S. as the most dangerous power the world has ever known, the authentic rogue state. Pinter also described a profound revulsion and disgust towards American power he saw growing throughout the world. Less than 24 hours later, the first jet smashed into the World Trade Center. In the weeks following the terrorist attacks, Americans seemed genuinely surprised at the level of anger towards the U.S. in some parts of the world. I wondered how Americans would react to such animosity from our closest allies. So I took the excerpts from the London interviews to the heart of September 11th, New York City. Cross the Hudson, forget it. (laughs) At the Yale Club in Midtown Manhattan, I met with three businesswomen, all what you might call hyphenated Americans. Linda Dunbar and Hope Stevens are African-American. Maria Revelle is a second-generation Italian-American. They all work in the New York corporate world, with the recent exception of Hope Stevens. By profession, I'm a manager of corporate training and development, but I recently lost my job um, in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Because why? Uh, The consulting firm that I was working for, most of our clients were located in the World Trade Center. And like many small businesses in Manhattan, we had to close our doors. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play off the CD player some comments from a group of uh, educated middle-class women from London and this was after September 11th. They probably think that within their continent the world is contained. If you watch the news, God bless it, what passes for news on American television, there isn't any international news. They're clueless. And the world is run for America, by America. They are just a clueless bunch of tossers. So um, insularity within the insularity of the United States because mm-hmm. there's New York City, you know, and and we know that no one's more provincial than a New Yorker, right? <laughs> really, ten blocks that's a whole different neighborhood. It's like you don't go ten blocks away. You know, so what she's saying about you know never travel, don't have a passport, don't you know, don't read, don't do this. It's like that's how we feel about the rest of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> to be fair, though, if you live in Europe and you travel for five hours, you're in a different country. If you yeah. live in America, you travel for five hours, you're you may have nowhere. left your state you may or have not. To New yeah. Jersey. <laughs> yeah, you might be in New Jersey. You know what I mean? So it's it's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge country. Yeah. I don't think we aspire to be like America, despite the proliferation of McDonald's and Starbucks. It's no secret that, over the past, particularly over the past decade, there's been a lot of uh, American cultural imperialism, if you will. There has always been a certain percentage of people outside the United States who love us, and there are a lot who really resent us and really hate our way of life. I think this is the first time a lot of Americans have really come to grips with the fact that not everyone loves us. The U.S. has been blamed for U.S. foreign policy, and I think uh, foreign policy could be looked at again and probably should have been looked at ages ago. But it's just very interesting to me that the U.K., having created the British Empire, having gone out and Hello. divided people and, you know, divided lands, like, right down the middle of the villages. Of yeah, yeah, and, any, and not to mention commerce. Yeah. But, um, you know, having done all that, it's just very interesting how now we're kind of, like, left to pick up the pieces and all of a sudden it's our fault and nobody is taking the whole colonial episode with, you know, mm -hmm. Britain, France, Portugal, um, Spain, Holland in Germany in some cases into consideration. From New York City to St. Paul, Minnesota now, where I set up the CD player for a group of county government employees. All of them are white, middle-class Americans. My name's Tom Burke. Uh, I'm a business agent with the um, Public Sector Labor Union. Cliff Olila. I'm a intake social worker for Ramsey County and adult protection intake. My name is Mark Galloway. I'm the building superintendent for the city of St. Paul City Hall Annex. Judy, why don't you start? What's wrong with Americans? They're arrogant, insular, and ignorant. But what's the, <laughs> but what's the bad part? <laughs> um, we get stories over here saying things like, many Americans uh, do not have passports, most Americans don't have passports, many of them never leave their own state, yet alone their own country. They've got no conception of the world outside America and also they're incredibly arrogant in that they think that everything American is great. Mind you, we're the same, we think everything British is great. No, we're more self-deprecating than that. I think it's absolutely true. <laughs> you know? I think in particular the notion that, that Americans are very um, centered on what goes on in the United States. Up until September 11th, the, all the news bureaus had basically abandoned all their international um, reporting. I think that the British because of the nature of the empire, in a lot of ways there's still that mentality of the empire, are very internationalist, much more so than a lot of other countries are. I mean, quite honestly, the French are pretty insular too. Uh, if you noticed in the paper recently, nobody here knew where Afghanistan was in the United States. If you went in the street and asked where Afghanistan was, they couldn't tell you. Or what is a Afghanistan? What language do they speak? I think it really varies from family to family. There are people that really don't care what happens outside of their block. There are other families that emphasize the richness of the world and all the various cultures. The comment about that uh, we're pompous, I believe also the people from England are very arrogant and pompous. And a lot of them don't even know where a lot of things are. They know where all the provinces of Canada are. But you ask them, where, where's uh, Mongolia? Uh, where's Guam? They can't tell you. 
Mark adds that he's an Irishman, fourth generation. So he's not too keen on the English, as he calls them anyway. Even so, he says he does not contribute to the IRA. The British often belittle Americans for lacking irony. So to make sure this story had some, I called up Ian Fraser, a writer who publishes in serious-minded magazines like The New Yorker and The Atlantic. As far as I can tell, he's no expert on any of the issues at hand, but that never stopped an American from having an opinion. Ian Fraser, would you describe yourself as much of an Anglophile to begin with? Uh, I deeply disliked English people. And it was even a policy of mine that I disliked English people. And after September 11th, there are many things that I used to dislike that I now like. I now like English people. What did you dislike about them? Well, they have kind of conceited accents. And uh, I hated the phrase chattering classes. Have you been to the United Kingdom? I've been over it in a plane. I looked down. It looked like the world's oldest suitcase. I have absolutely no idea what he meant by that, but I like it. In any case, I played some of the London interviews for Ian Fraser on the telephone. And a giant with the mind of a child is very dangerous, not only to those amongst whom he roams... So, are we dangerous to ourselves and, and to the world? Well, certainly in parts of the world we're a great danger. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say we're dangerous to ourselves and the world. I would say that... Um, we don't participate in the world enough, and when we do, we are inexperienced and we uh, make mistakes. But uh, I also think that America is a hopeful. It's a, a country that's very hopeful. It has a, it has a kind of naivete based on a belief that things can be better. And and when you believe that, you're going to look. Are you sort of a pro-American? Yes, fellow, absolutely. I think, it's a, I think it's the best country in the world. But I also know that it is a completely foolish, ridiculous uh, country, partly because democracy is, is a kind of silly-looking system. It doesn't have the sleek streamlining of, of certain functioning dictatorships. One thing that struck me about all the interviews, people in London seemed not just ready to catalog American faults they felt entitled to, but the Americans were generally much less prepared to pass judgment on the British, except for Ian Fraser. It's absolutely a blessing that English people do know about foreign countries because English people speak more or less the same language we do, and they can tell us what's going on in Afghanistan for example. Uh, I've noticed when I've traveled that there will be English people who just know what's going on wherever you are. So we can just rely on them. Yes. They write the best guidebooks, in my opinion, to foreign countries. And uh, we are going to be a part of the world stage from now on. And maybe England can tell us, like, (laughs) can show us what we should do, because they know more. It's also handy to go to a country that they used to occupy as an imperial power, because then people there will tend to speak English. Yes. In all seriousness, this issue of world awareness came up time and again talking to Americans. Before September 11th, many Americans really did not know how despised we are in some corners of the world. In London, I asked playwright Harold Pinter if he thinks Americans possess any special gift for being illiterate in world affairs. I think we're pretty American. Uh, uh, sorry, I think we're pretty, I was going to say, I didn't mean to say American, but we are pretty ignorant over here, too. <laughs> 
Lots of people use those terms interchangeably, after all. You know, I, well, I, I see that immediately, yes. Um, I didn't quite intend that. But I, I don't think the European continent is anywhere near as ignorant about facts of the world as your country and my country. You see, you can't, I don't think, when you say that the United States still thinks, people, I mean, uh, that they're still living in the greatest country in the world, those terms are pretty meaningless. And if they mean anything, they're highly dangerous because they only lead to arrogance. And arrogance is always supported by ignorance. If you want to be really arrogant, make sure you're really ignorant. (laughs) So the question remains, after September 11th, after going to war in Afghanistan, and with the threat of more terrorist attacks always in the air, are average Americans now less ignorant about the world? Recent public opinion polls seem to say yes. Many Americans say we have to pay more attention to international relations and take the needs of other countries more into account. That's probably true for now. But I'm skeptical when I'm told that some big event, even a military strike on American soil, even anthrax in every letterbox, that some big event will change our society forever. After all, we sent millions of Americans overseas during World War II, and eventually we settled right back into cozy self-absorption. For American Radio Works, I'm Stephen Smith. The roots of resentment are in one way the same in the UK as they are in the Middle East. Anger at the unrestrained use of economic and military muscle by the world's remaining superpower. The war on terror is a long war, unlike any other. That is the message from the White House. But the military campaign is only the first step. Resentments are historic but they are also rooted in more modern inequalities. Economic development, educational opportunities, the right to criticize publicly a repressive regime, support for democratic change are also part of the war on terrorism. These may not be as spectacular as a nighttime bombing raid on caves in eastern Afghanistan, but just as necessary to get at the roots of resentment. I'm Deborah Amos. Our report on Great Britain was a co-production with BBC World Current Affairs with help from Maria Bolinska and Polly Hope. The Roots of Resentment, America, Great Britain and the Arab World was produced by Sasha Eslanian and edited by Deborah George and Lauren Jenkins. Technical Direction, Craig Thorson with production help from Stephanie Curtis, Nicole Allwell, Mark Holterhouse and Rhonda Bernstein. Project Director, Misha Quill. The executive producer of American Radio Works is Bill Buesenberg. You can find any American Radio Works documentary on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find complete text and audio for each program, plus photographs and additional information. While you're there, give us your thoughts on whether the world sees America differently since September 11th. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Tapes of this program are available for $12. Send a check or money order to Tapes, 45 East 7th Street, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55101. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for this program was provided in part by the Open Society Institute. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio 
and NPR News. This is NPR National Public Radio.